someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short chew. But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman, and I'm here today with Kayoko Akabori and Yoko Kumano of Umami Mart in Oakland, California. You may have noticed that our introduction was a little bit different today, and that's because Christopher has the day off. I'm interviewing the founders of Umami Mart about their shop, but don't worry, Christopher will be back with us very soon. Kayoko and Yoko have been running Umami Mart in one form or another for a very long time. And they've had a brick and mortar shop for nearly a decade. Part of what makes them so special is their focus on community. Kayoko says this has been part of their identity since the very beginning. It's always about building community in some sense, you know, because we started out as a blog community. You know, we had like something like 30 different writers all around the world. And so it was about corralling this、um, community of readers and enthusiasts and Food and drink lovers. And we had a really high readership for a very long time. And I think we always had events with the blog. You know, in New York, I used to host these、um, events called Umami Ventures. And we would post it on the blog that we will be meeting up in Red Hook for、um, tacos or a Sunset Park Bon Mi crawl. Or we did all sorts of crazy stuff. We went out to Brighton Beach. Hosting events and bringing together people was always a big thing of ours. And I think that starting the brick and mortar store was a way to bring everybody together. And it was just sort of home base for us. So, this all started as a blog, which I used to read regularly. In fact, I still do. On their website, umamimart.com, they have recipes, they have interesting information about、uh, Japanese food and beverage culture, they've got pairing recommendations for their. For their alcohols. So, really interesting content that you usually don't find on a standard online shop. What started as two high school friends blogging about their culinary adventures as young professionals in New York City and Tokyo quickly grew into something bigger, as Yoko explains. That blog was called Umami Mart. Kayoko had named it. And we had a bunch of writers from around the world contributing to the blog. And we just posted reviews of where we were going, recipes of what we were making.、Um, and it was, it was a really fun international community that we had online. When it came time to monetize the blog, they really didn't want advertisers, which I deeply appreciate. I do a lot of cooking at home, and it seems like just about every recipe website is just bloated with ads, making it difficult to even cook a meal. Fortunately, Kayoko and Yoko decided to go in a different direction. And they put an online shop on Umami Mart. However, it wasn't easygoing. The first year in 2010, it was like tumbleweeds, no orders. And then、uh, 2011 comes around and、um, we start getting orders for the holidays. So we were getting a lot of、uh, barware imported because one of the writers on Umami Mart, he was writing a lot of、um, cocktail recipes and he proved to be a very Popular columnist on Umami Mart. So we started bringing in barware from Japan. Once the shop started growing, Yoko's apartment was no longer big enough to store inventory or fulfill orders. So they started looking for alternative solutions. Fortunately for them, rents had taken a nosedive during the Great Recession, and Oakland was particularly slow to recover. 
Oakland had all these open storefronts, there was a program that one of the landlords there in downtown, um, they partnered with the city and they were inviting new business owners or retailers to come into their spaces for six months rent-free. That was now nearly a decade ago. In fact, Umami Mart will celebrate their 10th anniversary later this year. Now let's join the interview already in progress. Yeah, that's something that I guess I miss about New York is you did have that sense of community even in in the neighborhoods around Manhattan. And and it's great to know that you've found that sort of uh, environment for your, for your business. And yet you still do a pretty strong online sales business, as I understand. I mean, you almost have national distribution, right? You can ship to almost any state, even alcohol. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We used to just ship within California. And then when the pandemic happened, it was clear that there were a lot of people calling us. And I mean, even before the pandemic, a lot of people out of state wanted us to ship alcohol to them. As you know, there are a lot of rules and regulations about shipping alcohol. So we do ship to most states, most of our alcohol. I don't want to say all of it, but there are definitely limitations. It's been really nice to be able to expand and ship nationally. I think especially during the pandemic, there were a lot of people who couldn't go to their local Japanese store or couldn't travel to Japan. So they wanted to get a bottle shipped. We did try to incorporate as many services as we could to make it available to as many people across the U.S. I remember telling my friends back in New York, oh, my friend Yoko has started Umami Mart, it's this uh, little, I was kind, kind of describing it as a kitchen supply store at the time, because I think I was aware you had the barware and that sort of thing. It was your online shop, right? And it's been interesting because I feel like as you've evolved, you've become much more alcohol focused. I don't even know if that's true. I have no idea what your revenue is based on different things that you, you sell uh, in your store. But how did you begin to focus on alcohol and how has that grown over the, over the years? I think we've always been uh, on the track to focus on alcohol because we started selling barware. Payman, who was the cocktail writer for many years for the blog, he was a bartender in New York. He worked at PDT. Uh, he ended up working, going to Singapore to work at a bar there. He works in LA now as a bartender. He was the one who put into our minds that, you know, Japanese barware was getting popular and you know, can we get some for him? So from there, we had to learn a lot about using the tools. I actually started bartending. That column was greatly influential for me to start bartending. I started uh, bartending when I moved back from New York and... Yoko worked at Takara, the sake room. And so she, you know, she also was very curious and we started sort of sharing knowledge and started to get more information about sake and spirits. And we were able to share that information on our blog and to our customers. I think from the very beginning, Yoko, I think we always wanted to get our beer and sake license, right? Yeah, we did. I mean, yeah, especially because... 
um, even at the tail end of when I was living in Japan, you know, I was working in advertising for a while. And then we started Umami Mart. And then I got really into food and drink. And so I quit my advertising job in Tokyo, worked at an izakaya. And at that point, I knew that I wanted to do something food and drink related. And then I moved back to the US, worked at Takara, building up my sake knowledge. And so, yeah, it was always there. I felt like we were always in the direction of alcohol. So it was organic in many ways, but you also did have this uh, long-term vision. I guess once you started to think about having a bigger sales presence or bigger retail presence, then alcohol became naturally part of that. Now, I know that obviously liquor licensing in the U.S. is is basically insane at every level of the tier or every tier in the in the distribution chain. Uh, did you start with your beer and wine license and then get your spirits license? How did that evolve? And I guess eventually you got your bar license. Is that right? So you could serve drinks on premise. Yeah. So that was um, with everything. We are very organic. We kind of dip our toes into the shallow end of the pool and then uh, gradually go on to the deeper side. Um, so in, I think uh, Kayoko had mentioned in 2014, we got our beer and wine license for um, mainly being able to sell sake. And then the following year in 2015, we got our hard liquor off-sale license through the lottery because there was no way we can we could afford the licenses on the market. It's enough money to get it uh, through the lottery. So that was really nice. It's actually a lot less competitive to get an off-sale license, which is, you know, a bottle shop license for the liquor. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to the new location to build out the bar. So we had a little bit more square footage and we were able to build out from scratch. And so right now, the way the space is laid out, there's a bar in the back and then the retail store is about 75% of that square footage. And when we opened in 2019, we opened with an on-sale beer and wine license in the back for the bar. And then the front part was an off-sale hard liquor license. So of course, the next question for people coming through the door was, why can't I taste the shochu or the whiskey at the bar? Because at the at the time, we were only on the beer and wine license in, at the bar. Mm-hmm. So during the pandemic in 2020, we took our chances and put our name in for the lottery for a hard liquor on sale license, figuring that there weren't that many people probably trying to open a bar in September of 2020. And so we were very lucky and we got that. And now we are finally at the stage where we are on a hard liquor license, both in the bar and in the retail store. Which is pretty rare. Oh, no, it is. It's, I don't know how many states that's even, or how many jurisdictions in states that's even legal. Uh, so that's pretty fantastic. You've been able to acquire all of that licensing, and now you can be full service on and off premise. And I guess, do you do any, any food service at the bar? I don't imagine you have a full kitchen, but do you offer snacks or things like that as well? Yes, not perishable food. We do offer, you know, like shrimp chips. 
Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, we don't we don't serve any hot food. It, it, we would love to, but we've been uh, told by the Department of Health, who we love, that we need several we need to make <laughs> several improvements for that. So we just we decided to nix that for the time being. Sure. I mean, yeah, you guys are seem to be constantly evolving, so who knows what what comes in the future, but uh just I was thinking as you were talking that you do have your retail space. I'm imagining you're still selling Japanese non-perishable foods, snacks and things like that. So, and and since drinking and eating go hand in hand in Japan. I mean, I learned the hard way early on as I made Japanese friends in New York that when a Japanese person invites you out for drinks, you better go hungry. Definitely. Or with, I think a lot of Americans, when you're going out for drinks, it's drinks, right? It occurred to me, if you're serving all these great alcohols, then it might be nice to have some things to pair uh, with the alcohols. You know what we do that's fun that I love doing is that we open up, you know, little canned fish and we just give them a toothpick. I think we're allowed to do that. Sure. But um, that I do love doing that. And we do uh, serve also like dried fish snacks and things. We definitely like love for the bar. We loved introducing kind of Japanese drinking traditions as well. So yeah, yeah, definitely food is a big part of that. Yeah. When we had our, for very briefly, we had a, a retail shop and, and standing bar here in Fukuoka and we didn't have any food licensing. It actually, in, the weird thing in Japan, the, the licensing is turned on its head. Uh, you can serve alcohol either on or off premise without a license. Wow. What you need a license for is to serve food. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so amazing. Isn't it? It's completely different. So any, any bar or restaurant or any restaurant can open and serve alcohol from day one. And there's no restrictions on that, but they have to go through food safety training and have all of the health and safety regulations around their kitchen set up in order to serve food. Uh, And now if you really want to get into the alcohol retail business here in Japan, you do need to have some licensing to buy at wholesale Uh because if you don't have that license, you have to pay retail. And I don't, might not have all of the, the details completely clear in my head, but it's just so different than the US model. And so when we opened our liquor store and our our standing bar, we could serve all of the drinks that we sold in the liquor store. We could pour for the customers by the glass, but we couldn't serve them food. But we we could have prepared food, the non-perishable things like you're talking about, the canned fish, the 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 shrimp chips and all that. But we couldn't actually serve it to them. They had to purchase it at retail. And then they could open it themselves uh, because we were not a food establishment. So, right, yeah. that's similar to us, actually. The, the you know, so we have to we have to give them the bag. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Similar idea, I guess. It's it's interesting that with these vastly different regulatory models, we end up at the same place in how we serve the customers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how funny. Um, but really fascinating. I now I like I I was really excited to visit before this conversation and now I'm even more excited. I think shifting gears a little bit, how do you choose which alcohol brands to to sell? How do you choose what to put on the shelf and what to serve at your bar? Yeah, it's a combination of things. I mean, before the pandemic, Kayoko and I would go to Japan twice a year and find things and uh, obsess about them and hope they would come stateside. 
or bug our importers and distributors to bring them in. Sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not. And then, of course, the other way is see what people are importing into the U.S. And I think that compared to when we've started, a lot is coming in, a lot more is coming in. But the main thing that has to happen is that somebody needs to import it into the U.S. And there needs to be a willing party who is either convinced by us that Either they agree that the product is as good as we say it is or as delicious, or they are, they've already been bringing it in. So that really determines how we choose what comes into the store. So th- th- it's interesting because I think normally a liquor importer or distributor is going to go into different shops and try to get placements, right? They're trying to get on the shelf. They're trying to, to sell you what they carry. Uh, and you turn that on on its head and you actually go out and request things. You see products that you believe would do well. And then you go and try to convince an importer to, <laughs> to buy it, <laughs> which is a, that's, I like that proactivity and it really helps make you tastemakers, right? It it puts you in a, in a really unique position in the Japanese alcohol world in the U S. And so can you maybe name a couple of brands that you've actually helped get into the U S market? Yes, for I can talk on the sake side. We brought in uh, the Shinkame Junmai, and we are also bringing in a Umami Mart branded sake from Kitashuzo in Shiga Prefecture. Um, so those two come to mind first, and we're really proud that we were able to bring them in, and um, we just love both of those breweries. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, how about on the spirit side? I know you haven't been doing it as long. Yes, for shochu, definitely the Kiroku Muroka shochu from Kuroki Honten. We definitely asked for that. Beautiful shochu. Thank you for that. <laughs> and and what else? You know, we are we're just constantly looking for new shochus. You know, we found the chuko, a very rare chuko. Kusu Awamori. We launched with Ichiro. I had visited the distillery many years ago. And so I, very early on and sort of when we first got our spirits license, I guess that was around 2017, we were at least able to talk about these brands that were a little bit more niche than Suntory, Yamazaki, or Nika. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it's it's always helpful for Yoko and I to go to Japan, but you know, social media has made it really nice for us to be able to at least see bottles and and say, hey, I, I like the look of that, or I would like to try that, and then for us to be able to talk to potential distributors. You know, I think that what makes Umami Mart so fun is the variety that we have. And so, you know, you can come to Umami Mart and find all sorts of different spirits and sakes from all all different distributors and importers, which I think makes a huge difference because you'll start to notice that with importers, it tends to have very similar palettes for everything that they bring in. And I think it's just much more fun to be able to discover new brands and new styles of sakes and shochus made by different people. And you could really only get that when you're working with so many different distributors. And I think um, what you were saying, Stephen, that we kind of, how do you say, like turn the model on its head or something, Mm -hmm. um, is because Kayoko and I 
never came from a retailing background. So um, we kind of go about things probably making it more work than regular retails might retailers might uh, go at things. We're not sticking to a handful of distributors or just choosing from a catalog. Um, I think what interests us is going deeper into the story and knowing about the brewer, visiting the brewer. Those are the things that really stick with us. And then, you know, we want to follow through on trying to get them over here. Yeah, I think that there's an authenticity to that, that you're really selling the things that you love. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not just relying on what's available in the market, but you're you're selling what you love. And that's so powerful for the consumer because you can tell the stories. You can introduce the brewery, the distillery, why this drink is important, why it matters culturally, historically, uh, or, you know, for whatever other reason that you find important. That's, that's a, I think, a really powerful tool. And hopefully people who listen to the show will be able to visit your website, learn from you guys, and start to understand these drinks uh, more deeply through all of the the work you've put in between the blog and and everything else. Let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about uh, shochu gumi. I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but if you could describe in that quarterly program what the customer would actually get out of uh, that delivery, what's the experience like? So we're quarterly uh, under one theme. You get two bottles. This next drop is March first. And the theme is going to be female front runners, which ties in with Yoko Sakegumi theme for March as well, which is female front runners, which we try to do every year to match up with International Women's Day and Girls' Day in Japan. And so I brought in two bottles for the club that is made by a woman or is a woman-led company. And so I've got Motoko Rice Shochu by Furusawa Distillery. And then I have Jaku Umbaku Barley Shochu by Nishi Yoshida Shuzo. And both of them are are female-led distilleries, which is very hard to come by. And I write pairing notes, tasting notes, and just a little bit of history on each distillery. You get a tote and a little zine that Yoko and I self-published a couple of years ago called Sake and Shochu Talk, which is sort of like an FAQ about sake and shochu. And yeah, it's just a, it's a fun community. We have about 60 members, nearly 70 members actually, uh, nationwide, uh, most which are in the Bay Area and they pick up in the store. And we, you know, we have a lot of events um, for the both sake and the shochu gumi. We have one actually coming up next week at a nearby restaurant. And yeah, it's just a fun club, you know, modeling after sort of wine clubs, but this one is quarterly and it just is two bottles of shochu. And I try to make sure, you know, there's shochus that have never been in the store before and I try to plan it in advance. And so we get bottles from Japan that are fresh and, you know, never before seen. It's it's really great because shochu is growing quite rapidly. And so there are, you know, maybe three years ago, we were sort of like, oh, are there going to be enough bottles, but new bottles? But, and the answer is yes, there are a lot of bottles coming in, which makes it, you know, hard to plan out quarterly. And so 
just because there's there's such a rapid number of new bottles coming in. And so, you know, we want to carry all of those bottles as soon as they hit our ports. And, and, you know, and so it's hard to wait for the launch of these bottles. And so, yeah, I think that it's it's good news for Shochu and for the club that we're getting such fun bottles, but we're also getting fun bottles for the store too. That's great news about Shochu growing. I, I know in my own experience, it, it, it seemed very flat for a very long time uh, when I was living in New York and little, little dribs and drabs of new brands would appear maybe, you know, one, two, three a year. But I definitely feel like there's been an, an increase in the awareness. And I guess that's the question. You've, you've now had your spirits license for, what, more than, I guess, going on five years. How have you seen the, the uh, interest, awareness, growth of, of shochu in your shop? I think we've seen it grow a lot. There are a lot of people who want to dig deeper and learn more about shochu and in the context of them having gone to Japan and visited and having a, an interest in Japanese cuisine and drinks. And I think that it's shochu is interesting because it's still in that niche category, but people are really committed to it, which is so exciting. I think with sake, there is a wider market. I guess there's more people who know about sake, but they, you know, there's, there are some people who want to go deeper and some people who are just casually just going to get a bottle of sake. But I feel like with shochu, people who are specifically looking for shochu, they have been searching. And then when they come to Umami Mart, we all get excited because we all want to talk about it. And it's a place that you can come to. And they know that we can all geek out and talk about it. And I think that's grown, um, but it just keeps getting deeper, which is really nice because people come back and, and you can tell that, you know, they have opinions about the bottle that we sent um, them home with last week. That brings back that sense of community that you've managed to foster, which is just, it's wonderful to hear that you've now got a growing community of, of uh, shochu fans, shochu lovers in the Oakland area. And hopefully through the shochu gumi, that will start to grow across the country. And I guess your Discord channel will make it easier for those shochu gumi members to communicate regardless of where they are. Is that right? Yes. It's really, it's, I, I think we're sort of on a, on the cusp of a shochu renaissance. And I think, you know, you just mentioned that when you were here in New York, you know, there were not a lot of new brands coming in and it was kind of getting stale. And we kind of, when we first got our spirits license, it was definitely just a few importers and a few distributors. And I get the sense that they were sort of sitting on inventory for a while. And I get the sense that distilleries and makers in Japan were sort of losing faith in the American market. And so we're kind of sitting in this weird time when in the last couple of years, I think a lot of distilleries and shochu makers were kind of trying to re-strategize how they wanted to move their products and that their products weren't really moving in America. But now 
just in the last year, I think that the shochu makers are understanding that they are starting to move and we have found a different audience that wasn't just Japanese restaurant goers before. And I think that it's being taken a little bit more seriously in the realm of spirits. And so it's it's a really exciting time for shochu. And it's just, I think it's really just the beginning. I think in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see a huge boom. It's going to be extremely dynamic. And it's going to be really exciting for the shochu makers, I think, in Japan. I hope for their sake that you're right. And another spirits tradition I think often gets overlooked, but is cut from similar cloth is awamori, right? From Okinawa. I feel like awareness of shochu has definitely grown in the US, but awamori I think still remains relatively obscure. Probably where maybe it's where Shochu was 10 years ago. Yes. Uh, how have you seen uptake of Awamori or interest in Awamori grow in, in your shop? You know, that's it's I think you're right. I think it is where Shochu was 10 years ago, which means that it's still slow going, but I think that Shochu is the gateway drug for Awamori. I think we get a lot of orders online for Awamori, people searching for it. In the store, we like to talk about it. You know, when we talk to people about our sake and shochu and whiskey selections, we try to first ask them what they usually drink. And, you know, if it's wine or beer or cocktails. And with awamori, I, I, I tend to talk about it like tequila a little bit, sort of something a little bit uh, different, earthy. and But, you know, because it's also rice, you know, I do think that sake drinkers would like it as well. But it does have sort of a, a rustic quality to it that I always suggest it for tequila lovers and mezcal lovers. I think there's definitely, Awamori is going to be huge, and especially with the, all of the blending and the age that's on Awamori. It's very special. And I think Shochu lovers are just starting to discover it. And I think, you know, and a very little is imported here. So I'd like to see more awamori here. Absolutely. And awamori is such a fascinating drinks category generally. I think, you know, you have this on the one end of the spectrum, you have sweaty gym socks and barnyard kind of funk mm -hmm. in some younger awamori, especially the more traditionally made styles. And yet, once it's long aged in ceramic, it just becomes this beautiful, deep, rich flavor bomb. And I think it's going to be so interesting to see how evolution of the understanding of the category grows in the US and how people talk about it is exciting for me. You mentioned you think that there's going to be a huge shochu boom in the next you know, 10, 15 years. And I, I really hope that you're right about that. But what do you see as maybe the challenges? Where do you, where do you see the potential pitfalls in in that growth potential. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think definitely supply will be an issue. I think shochu is so artisanal and small batch that you know, I'm very optimistic. And so I'm just going to say that, you know, I think that if shochu does hit a pivotal point like Mezcal did, it is going to have supply issues. I don't think that shochu makers are going to be able to put out I'm not and I'm not talking about the big big three or big four shochu makers. I'm talking about the really small honkaku spirits, honkaku shochu, small batch, small mom and pop distilleries that people I think are going to seek and seek in a way that they sought out the mezcal makers 
And I think that it really harmed the industry, I think, for Mezcal, the, the popularity of Mezcal. So I don't want to you know, speak too soon about how popular shochu is going to be, but I started bartending when nobody knew anything about Mezcal. And now, you know, 15 years later, it's just become a huge, huge industry. And I think that it was sort of a blessing and a curse for it to get so popular. And because shochu is made in such an artisanal way, the way the way mezcal is, I do see, I do think that the supply issue might be a problem. And I hope that the shochu industry would sort of take some notes from what happened with mezcal. I think that shochu makers right now are struggling, but I want to, I would love to just let them know that it's coming and that shochu is very special and they should not cut any corners and and try to make these deals. I think that people will come around and understand how special shochu is, especially because it's just single pot distilled. There's so much room for growth and so much room for people to discover something new. I think people are clamoring for it. I think that shochu will be the next big thing since mezcal. And I, I, and I hope that, you know, they, they don't, uh, the shochu makers, you know, believe that even though I do, I do, I do hear that it's dismal right now, but I think that every, every industry is because of the pandemic. But I think that once we get out of this in the next 10 years, it will be big. Yeah. I, I hope, uh, they can just hold on and, and survive. I know they're, they're uh, they've been, their revenue streams have really been hit here in Japan because people, a lot of uh, shochu consumption is done at uh, bars, restaurants, izakayas, and uh, that there's been a huge shift in how people are consuming alcohol. It's a lot of home drinking now, uh, but I, I agree with you. And I, I think the silver lining in, in your mezcal comparison is that shochu is made from annual crops rather than agave, which take years and years and years to grow to maturity. So at least they can continue to make more at a decent pace. And I guess the other blessing in disguise is a lot of the makers now are sitting on a lot of stock. I think what, what you could see happen is a little bit with what happened with Japanese whiskey, though, where it gains popularity much faster than anybody in the industry anticipated. They burn through all of their existing stock, and then they're stuck having to try to catch up and make more and increase capacity and that sort of thing. But that'll be a good problem to have, I think. And fortunately, unlike whiskey, shochu doesn't need to age for a long time to become a beautiful spirit. Maybe as we wrap up, you don't have to give me your favorite brand, but what are you really enjoying right now among the Japanese spirits that you're carrying at Umami Mart? If each of you could could give me like the one or two things that you're really, really excited about at this point. What am I drinking? I mean, I'm just drinking right now the shochu gumi bottles, the motoko, which is the rice barley shochu, the rice shochu aged for nine years. I'm drinking the jakumbaku, which is 100% barley, which is so deep and elegant and delicious on the rocks and oyuwari. And actually, um, Kyoko from Nishiyoshida, she used to be, she was a food nutritionist. And so she has a lot of recipes and she cooks a lot, it seems. And so she sent over some food recipes that would go well with the Jaku Mbaku. So I've been trying to make those recipes to go with the, with the shochu and just having a lot of fun and feeling like I'm in Japan. 
just, you know, eating and drinking. And that's the fun thing I think about shochu is that it's very versatile and you can uh, drink it during dinner and you should, and you should always drink it with food actually, which is the hard concept I think for Westerners about the spirits, drinking spirits during dinner. I think that maybe France and Armagnac is the only other thing I can, liquor I can think of or the spirit I can think of. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have, you have Russians with vodka and you have uh, Chinese with Baiju, but those are very different drinking experiences. I think it's, it's great that those are what are in your Shochugumi this quarter. And yet, and they're both beautiful drinks in their own right. The Jaku and Baku was like, that blew my mind the first time I tried it mm-hmm. because it's a very, very lightly filtered, 100% barley atmospheric distilled shochu that the the finish just goes on for days. Mm-hmm. Your mouth just gets coated with all of the residual fatty acids and amino acids, and you get this beautiful drink. And then with motoko, long aging is not really that common in shochu, unlike awamori. And Furusawa Distillery is still making things the way that they did a hundred years ago, you know, ceramic fermentation, ceramic aging. And that drink has so much time on it. It's got such complexity. It, It was hard to wrap my head around it when I first tried it. The complexity of it is really astounding. And yet it almost has this, it's almost a savory spirit, right? It's, it's got some umami. It's got some acidity. It's just, it's, yeah, it's wild. Motoko also blew my mind because you get this taffy strawberry flavor note, and yet you get minerality from it. And so the creaminess and the minerality was just is just so insane that you can get that both in one bottle. I really look forward to sharing that with our members. And then it would eventually be on our shelves as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great lineup. Can't wait to see what you're doing in the Shochugumi uh, going forward. Yoko, if, if you've had time to think about it. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah okay. I, I, um, so, um, yeah, one of the the Shochus, I, I actually really like smoky drinks. And so the Kurokoji Asahi Mannen um, Imo Shochu was uh, really up my alley. It has like all these like mineral flavors. Um on the nose, it was like a lot of like rye bread, like tamari. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flavor, I thought like that kind of licorice and it's hard to describe in a good way that it was kind of tar-like, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I liked that about it. Yeah, it's, I love it on ice and it's um, delicious. On the other spectrum... I'm not sure how much I liked it, but it was it was very interesting because it kind of reminded me a little bit of Ginjo, the Mori Izo, which I didn't know anything about, but uh, Kayoko and Ian had told me all about it. And it's quite a special bottle and it tastes very special, but so different from what I would expect uh, Imoshochu to taste like. It's so floral and clean. Hmm. Now, is that being imported now, or was that a hand carry back from Japan? It's being imported. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, that's a legendary shochu brand, probably the most famous in Japan. So the fact that that's available now is is astounding. That's promising for the future, I think, for shochu. With the Asahi Man and Kurokoji, that's uh, Watanabe Distillery. And 
they do not only do they do open fermentations like most uh, shochu distilleries, but they they also like just open up the windows and let the house yeasts or the the wild yeasts from the from the neighborhood just blow in and add all of that complexity that you get in in everything they make. So really, really uh, fun drink. And and you mentioned tar. I think I think rum drinkers will appreciate tar as a tasting note. Uh, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. <laughs> Uh, how about on the whiskey side? You guys have a, a lot of Japanese whiskey or other Japanese spirits. Is there anything that's uh, grabbed your attention recently? Yes. So um, the Akeshi from Hokkaido, the Boshu we just got in, um, that one, the salinity oh, is yeah. so wow. delicious. Um, and I, I I keep thinking about it. And yeah, I, I really enjoy that one and it kind of has like a toffee like a little salty toffee butterscotch and i think what that distillery is doing is just so interesting and it's really cool that they're doing everything um domestically yeah that i'm really excited to try some of their things i've had a couple sips here and there at whiskey bars here in japan but uh haven't yet gotten my hands on a bottle but i'll have to look for that that sounds uh absolutely fantastic as we wrap up, I guess, what are the future plans for Umami Mart, if you know? I mean, you've had this organic growth. You seem to have gotten to the point where you've built quite a quite a business. And what's coming next? Anything exciting or new that you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, well, so in the near future, we're having an event at Brooklyn Kuda in New York City on April 14th. Um, so we're really excited to get back into having in-person events. Will you both be there? Yes, we will both be there. We're we're planning it right now. Oh, nice. Yeah, and and this is to coincide with the sake gumi theme for April, which is going to be U.S. brewers, which is the first time I'm running this theme. Um, it's really exciting to be able to confidently um, offer four bottles um, from U.S. brewers, and I think that that. For shochu too, it'll be really exciting to see more distillers um, make shochu stateside. Um, but that's something we're doing for sake gumi. And then, as we had touched on earlier, uh, this is our tenth anniversary, so um, we are coming out with a bunch of collaborations with um, other friends who are also makers. We're coming out with the bitters with Miracle Mile in LA. And then um, we are also collaborating with uh, Den Sake here in Oakland for a uh, mystery bottle that we will hopefully release in August. Oh, wow. Lots of exciting things coming up. That's that's great. We'll definitely uh, be keeping an eye on it uh, with everything you guys are doing. And uh, really appreciate you coming on the show today. And hopefully... Our listeners uh, who aren't aware of you are now aware of you and, and uh, can, can check out what you're doing. It's really, really exciting. We appreciate everything you've done uh, for Japanese spirits uh, in the U.S. and certainly wish you well with all of your future endeavors. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, much for having it's us. It's been so fun to talk and, um, yeah, talk shop about shochu. Kayoko, any, any closing thoughts? I think Japan Distilled is doing an awesome job of bringing, you know, drinks from Japan to the forefront. So thank you for, you know, talking to us and just talking to people and bringing more information out. And it's 
really fostering more community, I think, and conversations about this. So thank you to um, for Japan Distilled, and we hope to see you in the coming months. Yeah, that's another future plan is visiting Japan and seeing all you guys and then working on a collaborative shochu. I would be down for all of that. I can't wait to host you <laughs> here in Kyushu. Would love to take you to some of my favorite distilleries and uh, enjoy some of the local cuisine with the local drinks. That, that sounds like a, a really nice time. And I absolutely will be back in the Bay Area at some point. And there's no doubt that Umami Mart will be probably the place I spend most of my time. So, <laughs> uh, Wonderful. Again, thank you so much for being on the show, uh, Kayoko and Yoko. As I mentioned earlier, you can find out much more about Umami Mart and read their blog posts, which are such a clever part of their business, at umamimart.com. They still take online orders as well. You can also find Umami Mart on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Of course, you can find Japan Distilled on those sites and also on Twitter. But please visit our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes for this and every episode. I think you'll find them worthwhile. Now, to all of you out there in Japan Distilled Land, we wish you a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai! We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. 